to diagnose the issues, identify solutions, and work with and through the management team to execute those solutions and restore health to the company. In business, the way you measure the health of a business is you look at the bottom line. In church, the way you measure the health of the church is you look at the fruit. If a church is healthy, the fruit is unity and joy, stable or growing membership and an impact in the community. When churches get into trouble, the fruit is division and decline. When churches get into trouble, it's my belief, and I believe you can find it in Scripture, that it's time for them to get back to the basics too. Now, I have often maintained that church would be easy without people. You know what I'm saying? Right? It's only, it's only people to get in the way of going to church. I mean, think about it this way. It wouldn't be necessary church, but it would be easy without y'all, right? If you were to ask 100 people to write down their definition of exactly what a perfect church would be, and you collected up those answers, about how many different answers do you believe we would receive? About 100, right? It, it, it's almost like church was designed to be torn apart. And it's almost miraculous that any church can come together and stay together. You see, there's no such thing as a perfect church this side of heaven. We live in a fallen, tragically fallen, and imperfect world. We attend imperfect churches occupied by imperfect people and served by imperfect leaders. It's a miracle when a church can stay together. And with so much difference, it should be so easy to focus on the things that divide us rather than the things that unite us. Yet despite all of the imperfections out there, some churches manage to grow and thrive. And I believe that successful churches stick to the basics. The only way that you can get a group of diverse, individualistic, and let's face it, anybody other than me ever get a little selfish? Selfish people to come together and stay together is by focusing them on one thing that is bigger than themselves. When asked to deliver this message, this passage of scripture was the first one that came to heart. And through the months, it has never wavered in its place. It's one of my favorite testimonies about the early church, and I believe this has a deep relevance to our current situation at Parkway. Before we approach the scripture passage, I would like to provide a little insight into the author's intent and a little bit of context that Luke leaves out to make you understand what a truly extraordinary fellowship this early church was. In the introduction to his gospel, Luke says that it is his intention to provide a carefully investigated orderly account. And I believe that as we approach the scripture, you will see specifically that. Now, just a little bit of context. If there was ever a church that should have never come together, 
and never stayed together. It was that first church in Jerusalem. You see, just a couple of months before that church was formed, Jesus, with his disciples, came into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He was thronged by tens of thousands of people who wanted him to become the king. Within a week, he had been rejected by the masses, betrayed by a friend, judged, mocked, beaten, and crucified. Dead and buried, he rose from the dead, restored his remaining disciples, and ascended into heaven. The early church in Jerusalem started with 120 leaderless laymen who were scared out of their wits and in hiding. And all they could do is pray and wait for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's not like we're off to a good start here, is it? Right? And then all of a sudden, the Pentecost comes, the Spirit descends, and on that day, Peter testifies, and 3,000 people are saved and come to faith and are baptized. And the church just grew from 120 to 3,120, and where do you fit them all, right? This is a, sounds like a good problem to have, right? Well, how do you train, equip, and unify so many disciples? You see, there's a little thing in here that you got to go back a couple of verses to find. And that is that these new believers were from all different corners of the world. They were culturally and ethnically diverse. As a matter of fact, Scripture re refers to no fewer than 15 different and frequently rival regions being pulled together. They were divided by language and tradition. On the surface, there would be nothing to suggest that you could pull these people together. Now, it gets a little worse. In accepting Jesus, they were committing blasphemy and basically signing their own death warrants. And as a result of that, many, if not the majority, lost their homes, their families, their jobs, their inheritances, and their religious identity. They were diverse, they were desperate, and they were destitute. And you've got to ask the question, how can such a varied and motley collection of diverse individuals come together. And I think that with his usual precision, Luke gives us a very compelling case. If you in in, in the gospel that we just read, Luke identifies four activities that were the focus of the church. As an outgrowth of these four activities, there were six attitudes that were created within the church that led to three outcomes of an incredibly vibrant and healthy church. If you return with me to verse 42, here are the activities. They, all the believers, 
devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They came together, they studied the word, they stayed together, they observed the sacraments, and they prayed together. By devotion to these four foundational activities, the church rapidly became verses 43 to 46, you can find it in there, God-fearing, unified, caring, charitable, grateful, and joyful. And as a result of these activities and these attitudes, in verse 47, we see three fruits being produced. The people praised God publicly. They enjoyed the favor of all people, and God added to their numbers daily those who were saved. Now, when you stop to consider that apart from the Gospels themselves, the majority of the New Testament consists of letters being written by the apostles to seriously dysfunctional churches, this church really seems to stand out as one of a kind. And as a matter of fact, I believe it's precisely because it's so unique that Luke takes the time to, to bring it out and talk about what they did and how they did it. Consider the church in Ephesus in his letter to the Ephesians. Paul's writing to that church with a prayer for unity. In other words, he's trying to get them to quit being divided. Now, the church in Ephesus, for those of you that haven't attended it yet, okay, back in that day, it was one of the most successful, wealthiest, largest churches in the early church. It's like Brownsbridge on steroids, okay? And they planted other churches, and they supported other churches, and they were founded by Paul himself. And two of the other early pastors were a guy some of y'all may have heard of, a fellow named Timothy and an apostle named John. You couldn't get off to any better start. And yet by the time the book of Revelation is written, Jesus himself testifies against this church. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember how far you have fallen. What's this first love our Savior's talking about? Could it be the key to a healthy, unified church? A church that brings glory to God and earns the favor of all people? Could it be? I think if Dr. Luke gives us a pretty clear and compelling insight into what this first love might be. Back in verse 42, they devoted themselves in the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Now, the New King James Version of the Bible renders that devoted as continued steadfastly. This wasn't just a one and done. They devoted themselves. They continued, they diligently and without ceasing studied the teachings of the apostles, the gospel story. You see, the early church couldn't get enough Jesus. 
The study of the Word of God fulfilled in the person of Christ consumed their time and brought them into agreement about the one main thing. The one big thing. The first love. You see, the study of Scripture brought them so together so powerfully that all of their differences couldn't divide them. In other words, the diligent congregation-wide study of the Word laid the foundation for fellowship. Bottom line, people who don't like each other aren't going to hang out together, right? You've got to be able to agree on one thing to bring people together. And I hate to say this, but it's human nature and it's not politically correct. But when you meet somebody new for the very first time, the way your brain is wired deep down in your subconscious, bet y'all didn't know I could use a four-syllable word, right? Pretty impressive? Subconscious. That's four, isn't it? Deep down in your subconscious, the first thing you see when you meet somebody new is not what makes them the same as you, it's what makes them different. Ethnicity, gender. See, I didn't say sex in church like you thought I was going to, didn't I? <laughs> Ethnicity, gender, age, and size. Because in our, in our, in our deepest inner core, different is initially perceived as a potential threat. And it's not until you can find something in common with somebody that you can come together with them. Let me see if I can give you an example. Most of y'all know Tom Harrell, right? Everybody pretty much know Tom Harrell? There is nothing in the world that Tom Harrell and I pretty much have in common. From a, You know what I'm saying? Tom's over here. I'm kind of over here. Tom graduated from probably with honors, the North Avenue Trade School. <laughs> For those of you that consider that to be a college, you would refer to it as Georgia Tech. <laughs> I, on the other hand, was uninvited from future attendance at the University of Georgia for a failure to meet the minimum acceptable academic standards. Tom worships in grown-up church at 8.45. I disrupt y'all. Tom wears socks to church. Tom is quiet and polite. I'm boisterous and loud. Tom was raised a Christian. And for the first 35 years of my life, I raised something entirely different. <laughs> Give you a clue. Take the word hello and subtract the O, okay? Tom is organized and detail-oriented. And this church benefited greatly from his multiple years as the clerk of session. I, on the other hand, could not organize a sock drawer if I had socks. <laughs> These are borrowed. 
And my failure, my inability to pay attention to detail almost single-handedly got us kicked out of the denomination the one term that I served as the clerk of session. <laughs> Little old ladies of Presbytery hated me. And so there's nothing in Tom's and my background or personality that would bring us together, but I can tell you this. Despite all of our differences, we are united by three things. We are united in our love for God, the study of Scripture, and in our desire to serve this congregation. And because we agree on the big things, little things don't matter. Are Tom and I ever going to be best friends? Uh-uh. His reaction, by the way, is much stronger than mine, okay? <laughs> do we ever disagree? You bet we do. But it's never enough to break the bonds of fellowship because that which unites us is greater than that which divides us. You see, sound teaching and proper doctrine not only lays the foundation for fellowship, it adds significance to our sacraments. The Lord's Supper doesn't mean anything without the context. The baptism doesn't mean anything without the context. Sound teaching, proper doctrine, lays the foundation for fellowship. It provides significance to our sacraments, and it informs and empowers our prayer life. You see, everything that drove the unlikely success of the apostolic church in Acts chapter 2 is derived from the teaching of the apostles. Sound teaching not only drove the activities of the church, it transformed the attitudes of the people who participated. They were in awe of God and what he had done. If we know scripture too little, our God is too little, and therefore we fear him not. This church was unified, caring, and joyful. These are the outcomes of fruitful fellowship. They were charitable, and I can assure you this is not a natural state of humanity. You do not have to teach selfishness, and I can prove it. Anybody here have more than one child? Who, who had more than one child? What is one of the first words the second child learns to say? Mine, right? So they were charitable. And finally, they were grateful for the little bit that they had rather than being envious of the wealth of others. Now, evidenced by the explosive growth of the early church, there's clearly a power to the teaching of the apostles. And to try to bring this message to a conclusion, I'd like to look really quickly at the answers to three questions. Number one, why were they teaching? Number two, what were they teaching? And number three, what relevance does any of that have to us here today? Why were they teaching? They were commanded to. In Matthew 28, as Jesus is ascending into heaven, his last recorded words to his disciples were, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go ye therefore 
and make disciples out of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. You see, simple men were given a simple mission. Make disciples. And to accomplish that simple mission, they were given a simple method. Teach them to obey all that Jesus commanded. Simple men, simple mission, simple method, simple. And that simple commandment has authority throughout the ages. Every faithful follower of Christ from the, all the way back to today until he returns is under that commandment to teach them all that Jesus commanded. What did they teach? Luke mentions the teaching of the apostles on no fewer than 11 occasions in the book of Acts. Yet he never specifically defines what they were teaching. In 2 Ephesians verse 20, Paul tells us that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles, New Testament, and the prophets, Old Testament, with Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. In John 14, 26, at the last, stuff, at the last supper, Jesus tells his disciples, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. I think it's reasonable to infer that the apostles taught with the testimony of eyewitnesses, confirmed by prophetic scripture, and guided by the Holy Spirit. The very Jesus that was foretold by Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, born of a virgin, a ministry of miracles, a betrayal, a death, a resurrection, and an ascension to the seat of the authority on the right hand of God, the apostles taught the totality of God's word. They taught God's truth. And how do we, in our desire to come close to God, respond to truth? I love the story of Cleopas and his fellow traveler on the road to Emmaus. And I really, really, really wish that to be able to deliver this, I had a good Jewish accent, you know, sitting right back here that I could pull up and put out there. But when Cleopas talks to the disciples about his encounter with Jesus on a road to Emmaus, were not our hearts burning within us while well, he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? How many times, guys, anybody other than me ever have a, a, just a really, really, really solid foundational scripture, opening scriptures, you know, sermon, just speak to your heart, open your eyes and have your heart burn within you?
You see, sound teaching of the scriptures provides lifeblood to the fellowship, observance of the sacraments,